Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the Court. For the record, Eric Magnuson on behalf of Prospect ECHN. UCC 1203 unequivocally provides that it's the economic realities of a lease transaction or a sale transaction that determines which it is. It was written by the drafters of the Uniform Commercial Code to get past the issues that had plagued courts uh, for decades on what did the parties really intend and how should it be recharacterized. It's, a, it's an objective test. So, counsel, let me ask you about that. I mean, I understand your argument in the beginning of the district court's opinion talks about general Minnesota contract law and it includes reference to intent. I take that point. The court then moves on to the bright line test and says, look, this is what's at issue here. And then it quotes UCC or one of the cases quoting the UCC saying, this test focuses on economics, not the intent of the parties. And then the court proceeds to do the analysis, the bright line analysis. I agree. Where is the evidence that it went to intent as opposed to the economic reality? I think if you look at the way the district court wrote its opinion, um, it talks a lot about intent. It talks a lot about the terms of the contract. Uh, and I think that influenced its decision later on. Because basically what the judge said was, well, the parties made a deal and I'm going to hold them to it. And I think she gave short shrift to the economic reality analysis. And I think she just plain got it wrong uh, in addition. She started off by saying, well, you flunk the threshold issue of 1203 because this contract can be terminated. She went to the language of the contract and said it could be terminated. What she did was conflate the ability to stop the payments during a lease term because that's exactly what 1203B is talking about with the ability to have an end to the lease. The statute says um, it's a security interest if the consideration, consideration that the lessee is to pay the lessor for the right of possession is an obligation for the term of the lease. That's what you can't stop. If you look at, uh, I think it's an American tech, uh, it's a good example of a case where uh, partway into the lease, the, the uh, putative uh, lessee said, I don't want to do this anymore. Here's the stuff back. I'm not paying you anymore. That's how you terminate the payment obligation. She conflated the ability to terminate the payment obligation with there being an end point on the lease. Now, I, I agree that she did talk about uh, 1203B and C, those factors. And it's really, it's bright line, and if you don't satisfy bright line, it's contextual. And uh, scores of cases uh, say that that's the analysis that you carry out. Um, and she just, I think, at page 23 of her opinion, just got it wrong. She said you could terminate the lease by, ending, by going to the end of the term, and that's good enough. That's not what the statute says. So, but even if you don't get past the threshold issue of the bright line test, the cases are absolutely clear uh, that you then engage in the contextual analysis. White and Summers makes it really clear that B and C of the statute are really partners, uh, that you, you, you have this objective bright line test, and that takes care of most cases, but if you don't satisfy that, then you turn to the contextual analysis. And we've cited you dozens of cases where the court has said, nope, you didn't make the bright line test, but we're going to say that this is a disguised sale transaction so on the context. Just to make sure I'm clear, is that what 
was referred to as the economic realities test in the district court opinion, or is this something else? It's essentially the same thing. Well, is there a Minnesota authority applying the economic realities? Test? Sure. FBS leasing and Point Sanibel, um, I, I can't remember the, the rest, but they're both court of appeals decisions. Okay. Uh, uh, and in fact, uh, in uh, the, the district court itself cites a 1920 or 75 uh, uh, Minnesota uh, Supreme Court case applying the economic realities test under a prior version of the statute. But remember, this is a uniform law. And to say, well, I can't find any Minnesota cases on it. Minnesota cases say we look to all the courts that have ever decided cases under this. In fact, under Chapter 645 of Minnesota statutes that has to do with uh, 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 construction uh, of statutes, it says when there's a uniform law, you look to all states that have decided the uniform question. Um, but let's talk about the economic realities of the transaction. Um, What's absolutely clear is it's a prospective analysis. When the parties enter into the agreement, you say, okay, based on those facts, what would they reasonably expect at the end of this lease? Well, where do you get that kind of evidence? Well, here there's a ton of it. It's Winthrop's own admissions. First of all, their salesman said, well, we always set the term of the lease and the lease payments to cover the economic, expected economic life of the property. They don't pick the number out of the air. He referred to the American Hospital Association depreciation guide for the useful life of computer equipment like this. He said, we assign a, and then the accounting records of Winthrop assign a residual value. They put it on their books. First of all, they book it um, uh, as a sale. They don't book it as a lease. And they put what their expected residual value is and in five of the seven schedules, they put zero. Uh, and you, the other you two, focused a lot on the, the, you say that the district court really put too much emphasis on, uh, I think, their corporate representative statement about, uh, well, there's a resale. There's a, there's a oh. robust resale market for this. Um, yep. I guess a couple of questions. Um, you know, if, if it wasn't too much emphasis, is that enough? Well, Your Honor, right. talking, and, and, and even if it's even if it's even if we accept it, it is there so much other evidence to to counter it? Is that did that question make sense? Let me put it to you this way: This is summary judgment. This isn't sufficiency of the evidence for fact finding. So this isn't where we say, well, there was some evidence here and there was some evidence here, and the finder of fact could decide who to believe. This is summary judgment, and the question is: Is the evidence so clear? that Winthrop wins as a matter of law? Well, what have we got? We've got Winthrop's admissions. We've got how they entered things into the account. We've got two expert witnesses, one a leasing expert and one a, a, an appraisal expert that said there's no way based on these records and this equipment that there could have been any reasonable uh, expectation of value. Okay, maybe we lose that in front of a jury, but not on summary judgment. So what do they come in to oppose the summary judgment with? It's great. It's Gendler, the corporate representative. He says, well, we expected to get some money when we got it back. Of course, he never said what it was. He didn't say the laptops are worth this much. The used cabling that we have to pull out of the walls is worth this much. 
They booked it at zero. What about you, the fact that your client continued to use the equipment after the, after the end of the lease or whatever you want to describe it as? Absolutely a, a red herring that the district court followed. Because, first of all, the statute's clear. It is a prospective analysis. It's not what do you do at the end. Continued use isn't the test. Um, there may be some use to the putative lessee of the equipment, but the question is, what's the value that would go back to the lessor? I've got a years-old MacBook Air. Um, it still works. I can't update the operating system. I can't update the software. And if I tried to sell it to somebody, I wouldn't get anything. Well, I could still use it. That's not the test. The test is, what is the economic value that flows back uh, 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 to the putative lessor. And we have cited a number of cases uh, that uh, uh, say uh, the continued use uh, is irrelevant. Pillow text at 720, WorldCom at 56, Clinton Nursery at star four. Uh, uh, remember in Pillow text from the Third Circuit, they were still using the light fixtures, but they didn't have any economic value to the person who had uh, uh, leased them to them. You, you had also focused, you had earlier in your argument said, well, the the term of this, you know, five years is sort of, they've calculated out the value, right. what, what, would it, what, what its value would be at the end. How else would you calculate out a lease? I mean, isn't that sort of, I'm going to lease something for for someone and I want my money back. Oh, they but, can kick it back to me whenever they want, but how else am I going to calculate the monthly rate to pay for, for that. Well, you look at what kind of return on investment would they like to get during the period of time they don't have the property. Um, you know, uh, if, if you rent a car, um, there's going to be significant value at the end of the lease. That's because a car has a longer useful life than a two-year lease. Not true with computer equipment. And so that's how you... That's how you analyze this, you set it up. And remember, they booked it as a sale. They booked it as having zero residual value. And as we say in the brief, unless they're the Enron of accounting, um, that's got to mean something, and it does. Now, you, you've got Gendler on the one hand saying, we were going to get something back. That is no foundation. A fact finder could never say Here's how much they were going to get back, because Gendler told us how much they were going to get back. It is speculative. It is incompetent to oppose summary judgment. And it was error for the district court to rely on it. So whether she's right or wrong on the Bright Line test, I submit she was, she was wrong. Judge Nelson got it wrong because she conflated termination of the obligation to make payments during the term with ending the, the lease. Um, but even if, even if you get past that, on this record, there is absolutely no way to support summary judgment for Winthrop. It just can't be done. There's, there's 20 pieces of evidence in Prospect's favor, and there is Gendler coming in and saying, we would have gotten something for it. And that's contrary to their own accounting records. I think I'm getting into my rebuttal time, and I'd like to save some of it. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Good afternoon, Your Honors. Thomas Boyd here on behalf of the Appellee Winthrop Resources Corp. We ask the Court to affirm the District Court's judgment in all respects. The judgment was based on a straightforward application of the UCC's objective bright line test based on the plain and unambiguous terms of this lease. The UCC seeks to establish basic rules and guidelines that promote certainty, clarity, and efficiency. This enables commercial parties and industries to, to make measured financial decisions based on reasonable expectations. The district court's judgment adhered to these basic goals. In contrast, Prospect's arguments run counter to these goals by introducing uncertainty and creating a recipe for increased litigation. Prospect seeks to turn the objective bright line test into a blurred subjective post hoc exploration that would artificially manufacture fact disputes in every case. Ultimately, what Prospect is asking the court for is to turn the question posed by the UCC, does the lease schedule create a security interest, into whether Prospect can convert this lease into a sale, void its obligations after the fact, and obtain a, a, a refund of all the payments it has voluntarily made over the years. Prospect cannot use the UCC to get out of its own agreed-upon obligations. Section 1-203B is not intended and cannot be used by lessees as a means to unilaterally void their obligations, the terms of the lease that they signed vis-a-vis -vis the other contracting party. Prospect is contractually bound by the terms of the lease agreement and the lease schedules to which it is a party and cannot use the UCC to void those obligations. The district court correctly applied the UCC's objective bright line test to hold the unambiguous terms of the party's agreement establish that these are leases because they are subject to termination by the lessee. The district court did not base this conclusion on labels. They, the court did not base this conclusion on the fact that the parties called this a lease or a true lease. Rather, the district court correctly examined the actual terms that the parties themselves agreed to. Specifically, the contract terms plainly permit the lessee to terminate the leases. Section 1. But, 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 the, but the lessee cannot terminate during each scheduled term, right? Correct? There is a period of time where they just simply cannot terminate. Let me be clear. Uh, I, am, I am talking about uh, the, the terms of the lease that enable the lessee to terminate during the term of the lease. And the term of the lease is defined by the parties in the lease to include the initial term and every subsequent uh, renewal period thereafter. Section 1 specifically defines term as, uh, quote, commencing on the installation date for all equipment on such lease schedule and shall continue from year to year until terminated. That's not only the plain language of the, of the uh, agreement that the parties entered into, but that's also consistent with the UCC. The UCC specifically recognizes that the term of the lease includes both the original term and subsequent renewal terms. So we're, we're talking about one unitary continuous term, and the lessee clearly, under the terms of the lease, clearly has the right to terminate 
at the end of the initial term or any subsequent year thereafter. That some, of the, some, of the case, some of the case law, it's a little difficult to get any analysis on that particular issue because it seems there's a couple of cases where the parties just concede that that we couldn't terminate. So it's really hard to find much guidance. At least I had trouble finding much guidance on that particular issue. The uh, and I I don't know that there is a, a a case that deals with that specifically. There are cases that have been cited in the party's brief where there's just a single term. I think uh, I'd forgotten which of the cases it is, whether it's WorldCom or another, but it. It has an eight-year term, and that's it, and there's no termination. Um, there are also cases that um, uh, I think in, in the reply brief, um, uh, Prospect is cited to a bankruptcy case called Lash. And in that case, uh, there was no right of termination during the initial term, but then it went from, uh, I think, a four- or five-year initial term to then going month to month, and they did have the ability to terminate then. But at that point, it was a very different lease. Lash provides that after the initial term, the lessor will then commence marketing the, the leased property for sale. Clearly, that's a secured or security uh, interest where the, the lessor is immediately selling the property to pay off what the lessee has not otherwise compensated them for. So there's that's probably as close as it comes. But getting back to our situation, the, the lease clearly defines term as, as, I, as I've quoted, um, the, the commencement of the initial lease and every renewal period thereafter. And that's consistent with the, with the uh, UCC section that we're relying on. It also reflects uh, in the terms themselves that uh, <clears throat> the parties recognized that the, uh, that the goods that were being leased would have remaining economic life after the initial term. Uh, specifically, the parties recognized that by uh, providing for the renewal period. If the goods would not have had any remaining economic life at the end of the initial term, why would there be a renewal? And more importantly, why would Prospect continue to renew and use the goods? Because they had remaining economic life. Likewise, if, they did, if the goods did not have remaining economic life, why would uh, the lessor require that they be returned? And on that point, uh, <clears throat> Prospects Council was citing to Mr. Gendler's testimony, and I think he was referring to testimony at uh, appendix page 410. Mr. Gendler not only testified that uh, they would offer or they would seek to sell returned equipment, but went on to testify that they actually had a, that is, um, Winthrop has a remarketing group. And it's headed up by Cindy Randall, who's been with the company some 25 years. So that's not just some idle talk. That's something that's done on a regular basis. Uh, well, as, assuming that, that there is this um, economic realities analysis that the court should engage in, what is your response to the assertion that this is 
this is facty. You know, this is disputed. There, are, one side's got some statements of, about this particular issue. The other um, counters it, and that this is not the kind of thing for summary judgment. I would respond by uh, reiterating our position that Judge Nelson correctly decided the issue as a matter of law based on the terms that the parties agreed to. Here, we're, again, we're not talking about labels. Judge Nelson looked at the terms, the, un, uh, the unambiguous terms of the party's lease to determine as a matter of law that, for example, the terms demonstrated remaining economic life. The case law provide that in order to determine remaining economic life, the, the agreement has to uh, provide that out, at the outset of the lease, the parties expect the goods to retain some significant residual effect at the end of the original term. That is demonstrated by Section 1 and Section 7 of the lease. The, the uh, 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 Section 1 permits renewal because there would be ongoing significant economic life, and Section 7 requires the return of the property because there's continued economic life. The second requirement is that the lessor retains some entrepreneurial stake, either the possibility of gain or the risk of loss, in the value of the goods at the end of the lease term. Here again, Winthrop is, is uh, taking that entrepreneurial risk. They have that entrepreneurial stake that the goods will have some remaining economic life, either insofar as the lessee will continue to renew and use the goods, as they have in this case, or will return the goods and they will resell them, as Mr. Gendler testified. <clears throat> Ultimately, though, I want to, uh, well, I, I've just addressed the, their, their points on the first factor. So uh, the judge was correct that the lease is subject to termination by the lessee. Secondly, the judge is correct, finding as a matter of law, that there was remaining economic value. And third, uh, with regard to factor four, I know I said third, but they argue factor four, the district court correctly concluded as a matter of law that the lessee does not have an option to become the owner of the goods at no additional consideration or for nominal additional consideration. They do not have that right. The, le the lease does not give them that right. The lease provides exactly the opposite. They must return the goods. If they don't continue to use the goods and pay rent on those goods, they have to return them. They do not have the option to purchase them, let alone to purchase them at a nominal value. But let me uh, <clears throat> get past those arguments. Well, those are the, the bright line factors. Very briefly, with regard to the contextual test or the economic realities test that council referred to, there's no need to get there in this case because this case is easily decided based on the terms of the party's leases. But even if you were to get there, yet again, the terms of the party's lease make the economics very clear. In this case, uh, Prospect had the benefit, the economic benefits, of paying a lower lease price as compared to the cost of purchasing the goods, and the added flexibility of being able to return the goods 
rather than purchasing the goods and being stuck with them and not being able to upgrade once the lease expires. <clears throat> All right. So, uh, so is it your position? Is it your position that the economic realities test or the contextual test can be decided on the lease agreement alone? Like you know, the, there's a lot of testimony about a number of factors. Is that your position, or are you just starting us there? No, no. In this case, it can be. And and in this case, the lease is so clear, you would never get to the economic realities. The bright line test is the test that should apply in 99% of the cases. It's only when the, the, the lease passes the, the, the bright line test, but the court still has some concern. There's some issue here. The parties to this lease are trying to disguise it and they're making it look like a lease by calling it a lease, but in fact the terms are such that it's a security interest, and they're trying to disguise it so they can keep collateral out of the hands of third parties. Here, not only do the terms belie any such scheming here, but there are no creditors here. This isn't a situation where a bankruptcy court is trying to amass assets to pay creditors. This is a situation where a very solvent party to an agreement who's been a party to that agreement for more than a decade is trying to get out from under their own contractual obligations. That is not permitted. Council had cited to the Sanibel case, another case that was not cited until the reply brief. That does not stand for that proposition. That Sanibel case couldn't be farther from it. The Sanibel case provides you look at the documents and in looking at the documents in this case it was very clear that it was a security interest not only a security interest but a security interest to to um, uh, bind the the party to a different contract that was a contract for deed case the lease was actually um, identified and defined in the contract for deed as part of the project. They had the right to acquire the property for a nominal price. The rent was nominal, and so on and so forth. That was an entirely different case. But getting back to my uh, essential, essential point, they don't have a right to recharacterize this lease from a true lease to a security interest. But even if in some world they could do so, that does not get them the relief they're seeking here. That would not entitle them to void the lease. That would only be relevant under Article 9 with respect to the rights of other creditors. It would not absolve them of their own obligations to perform under the lease. Uh, I see my time is up. I appreciate your attention. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> to the last point council raised, he's absolutely wrong. Pillow text, the whole point of the dispute was whether when you recharacterize it, could you still compel payment of rent? The Third Circuit said no. Phoenix Pipe and Tube, no rent. Point Sanibel, in effect, this is almost a quote, in effect, 
the putative lessee bought the property and pays no damages for not returning it. That's the quote that we have in our brief. Triplex Marine, no adequate protection in bankruptcy, which is the same as rent. Uh, FBS, uh, the Minnesota Court of Appeals, no damages for not returning the property. This is the law. And how many times did you hear during Mr. Boyd's argument, it's the language of the contract that controls. And that is exactly what the last 30 years of cases interpreting 1203 have said is not the case. It's the economic realities. If they have a whole department on reselling equipment, why didn't we hear from one of those people? Here's the value of that stuff. Here's why we thought we'd get some money, as opposed to Gendler who says, when they return it, whatever that is, we'll get something for it. You could never go in front of a jury and say, figure out how much they're going to get back based on that. His testimony would be inadmissible. And when you oppose summary judgment, you have to present admissible testimony. That wasn't. And so if you get past the bright line test, which we think we satisfied, I mean, look, at page 519, no, 1207 of the appendix, you'll see a chart where Bent, uh, uh, our uh, leasing expert, said, I went through all of their documents, and I looked at how they did this, and I looked at all the accounting principles, and here's the residual value that they put down at the beginning of the lease. It's 0, 0, 0, 9.92% and 12.1%. And those last two schedules renewed for another year, and that ate up the rest of it. If you read White and Summers, they say each time there's a renewal of the lease, you have to do that same prospective analysis of what the economics are. It could be a true lease in the beginning and then change to a security agreement. That's a chameleon lease, and there's all sorts of case law on that. This is not a case about third parties. I agree. But it's a case about whether you're going to affirm a decision that is a clear outlier from the scores of cases that we've presented to you. Uh, each one of those cases that I cited, including Exchange Tech, which is a Winthrop lease that is identical to this, where the court said, no, it's a sale as a matter of law based on the way they booked it, and there's no further obligation to make any payments. If you affirm the district court here and you publish your opinion, you will be upsetting 30 years of UCC law. This is supposed to be an objective economic test. And parties can't contract around it. How many times did Mr. Boyd say terms of the agreement, terms of the agreement? You, they don't matter. They are irrelevant to the economic realities. The district court erred in granting summary judgment. If anything, my client should have gotten judgment in its favor. And at a minimum, this goes back for factual determinations. Thank you for your time. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel for a well-argued case and well-briefed. We appreciate it. Uh, we will take the matter under advisement.